Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. Perhaps good evening. God, we're so good at this. <laughs> Professionals, experts, well-trained in our arena. But today, uh, we're, we're taking a break from movie criticism to talk about venture capital and small business startups. I really think that it's important that we uh, recognize the beneficial effects of low-tax centers in high-density urban populations. Uh, it spurs innovation. And really, that's what we're all about here on Horror Vanguard. We, we love innovation. And, and today, today uh, uh, we have a little something special. We got the number one exotic space-born plant influencer to join us today. <laughs> uh, we, we have indeed. John, John, welcome back to the show. You're welcome. Uh, it's great to be back. Me and my many uh, spores and tendrils. <laughs> just love to be here. And could you just breathe in a little more deeply? When I release this fruiting body. <laughs> oh, Thanks. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I read the PDF you sent. I'm trying to inhale maximum spore content right now. We are, we are very excited that our... I suppose you're, you're, you're now kind of the resident expert in xenobiology and xenobotany. <laughs> yes. Uh, Xenobotanist. You, know, you, were, you were very kind enough to drop by and talk about space fascism. Uh, you were also kind enough to drop by back in, back in, back in the day in a deep dive in the archives uh, to talk about the J.G. Ballard adaptation High Rise, which was two, two honestly, just brilliant episodes. Um, but we are very excited to have you back to kind of a little a little extra thing, a kind of holdover from Musicals Month, from Music Month, maybe. Um, but we are talking about, uh, honestly, just a, a sort of irresistibly fun film, uh, The Little Shop of Horrors. Uh and I have been, I have been, I rewatched the film today and I have been practically vibrating with excitement about this bit of the show <laughs> since then. <laughs> Ash, my, my rhizomatic arboreal pairing in, in podcasting botany. Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, what, what is it about? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I just re reread reread the first line I start this with, and it's like, okay, this is all right. Here we go. We all have dreams, material dreams. <laughs> a nice place to live, good food, medicine, even basic stability has become a figment of the fey realm of sleep. Mushnik dreams of having a successful flower shop. Audrey wishes for a home life free of abuse. Seymour wants nothing more than to stand on his own two feet. Audrey, too, also dreams, a sentient plant dreaming of blood. However, Tui's hunger for blood isn't evil, vindictive, or cruel. In fact, it's on the same plane as the dreams of our other three characters. It's a dream of a material need. Just like Seymour, Audrey, too, was, by nothing more than the happenstance of history, born into a world that could not sustain its existence without massive cruelty. All of the other denizens of Skid Row are orphans by some measure, whether literally orphaned uh, or orphaned by a social system that refused to support them, they are wanderers. Audrey, too, is separated not by literal monstrosity, but by the monstrosity these systems force us to embody if we are to get ahead. Audrey, too's material needs aren't evil at their core. They're just dangerous in the same way a hurricane contains within itself no cruelty, but great potential for danger. These dangers could be mitigated, perhaps even harmonized, by a more compassionate society. Audrey, too, is eventually marketed, cuttings are taken, and it can be sold and wound up in every home in America. It's a pet rock for the end of the world. Disaster capitalism packages the apocalypse as product, selling Armageddon and naturalizing hostile relationships towards everything we share this world with. Hold your hat, hang on to your soul, something's coming to eat the whole world. Join us as we discuss The Little Shop of Horrors. Mmm. Yes. <laughs> then let us begin as we as we as we do now. Let us begin by uh, kind of talking about some of the formal aspects of of the film. Uh, this as an adaptation, uh, as a show, uh, as a a bit of practical puppet work. Um, what did you both think? 
Well, um, I'll just start by saying I like that I'm continuing my pattern of only appearing on episodes about movies I actually like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Please keep that going. But also, it's like this is one of like the four VHS tapes I had as a kid. So (laughs) I have seen it probably 375 times. So I really can't say if it's good. I mean, I I think it's great, but I can also recite the damn thing from memory. Uh, I, I I think it's I I I think it's basically it, you can't resist it. Like if you've never seen it, um, uh, you may find the opening a little bit weird. But like honestly, it's it's just an immensely char- like deeply charming movie. I think I I don't think you can really be mad at this film, even if you decide that you don't like it. Um, what about you, Ash? Um, so I I love Little Shop of Horrors. Like like the the music is great. Both versions have phenomenal performances in them. Um, I've never seen this on stage, although I, I like now rewatching this, I would love to see this on a good stage show or even a bad stage show. And I think in, in terms of what we do on the show, how have we waited 190 question mark episodes to talk about the spaceborne plant that consumes people with aspirations? Yeah, literally, literally the blood of the uh, desperate to be upwardly mobile in the class system. <laughs> the metaphor is not subtle. <laughs> no, it, it, it's not subtle, but also um, I, I think a, a real question is like, what is Audrey to a metaphor for? Because you can just say, well, you know, capitalism or the market driven economy or, you know, needing to keep the working people down, uh, people searching for desperation in their life. But like, let me put it this way. What kind of mode of exploitation is Audrey 2? Because Audrey 2 offers you impossible fortune and fame as long as you keep tending to it, giving it your literal blood, and then, right before it consumes you, make sure you pass it on to everyone you know. I ask the question, is Audrey 2 an MLM? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, By that we mean, of course, a multi-level marketing scheme and not... A Marxist Leninist Maoist. <laughs> it's not men loving men either. Although that's <laughs> the doctor, dentist maybe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we we will we will absolutely have to talk about um, the deep love, the deep deep libidinal desires of Bill Murray and Steve Martin uh, in due course. <laughs> right, but, but it's like you know what is? I mean, it's an adaptation of Faust, obviously set in America. But like, what is Audrey Two but the promise of a shortcut? Yeah, yeah, and it's you know it. It's it's the what, what do Americans have wanted since there has been in America is one weird trick to solve all their problems. Yes. If there's if there's one thing that I, I'm always a little reluctant to kind of generalize about the cultural spirit of of a nation, especially one is so amorphous and just damn weird as ours. Um, but if there's one thing that Americans do absolutely 100 percent love without flaw, it's a good con artist. And Audrey too runs one hell of a con. Yeah, it's like it's like the Music Man if he ate people. <laughs> yeah, it's yes. it's it's it's. Uh, I, I I I I couldn't agree more. And I think it's incredibly uh, important to point out. You know, this is a film of the late 1980s as well, right? <laughs> so so mm-hmm. I, which honestly I think makes the metaphor. I think makes your 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 argument about the metaphor even even clearer, right? Greed is good. What one weird trick for for finding your financial security? Working from home, you can you can make dollars, dollars, dollars every day. All you have to do is occasionally just turn bodies into mulch. Yeah, I mean, and those guys probably deserved it. I mean. <laughs> They're not in on the. They're not in on the game like you are. You're hustling. You're killing people. Right. You're on your grind. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hustle culture. It's it's yes. it's Reagan era hustle culture. The the one thing I find really interesting, right, is how is how we onboard Seymour into into wholesale murdering people for a plant. And it's like okay, like the you know at first you you make a little personal sacrifice, right. You, you got to skip those nights out with your friends. You got to you got to hustle. You got to grind. It's about you. And then the next step, it's like, OK, well, like that other guy didn't deserve it. He didn't work as hard. He didn't want it. And you know what? He was morally corrupt on top of that. So getting rid of him is a net positive. 
And then now it, it continues, right? Then we get Mushnik, who's like, okay, like, he's trying to reverse the con. He's trying to, to, to steal your position. And then it goes all the way to Audrey. And it's like, it's this, it's this beautiful evolution of like, this is exactly how the mechanics of this thing works. Yeah. The, I mean, to kind of see the, to see the process, you just need to look at the two, two songs in the opening half, which is, uh, Skid Row, the, the big ensemble number, which, um, is right at the top of the film. And then, uh, Feed Me, where he, it's the like convincing this person to to go out and do crime, <laughs> to, to go out and, and murder somebody, <laughs> but murdering them because uh, there's a lyric that like they look like plant food, right? They don't. If someone's on the outside, it's not just that they're a sucker. It's like they're not one of the chosen. They're not. They're not even a person anymore. Right, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned those two songs because I think the thing that makes Audrey to so seductive isn't just you know fortune and fame and all the material comfort big cadillac car all that it's that audrey too offers you dignity mm. and they mention in skid row like specifically about how the workers are treated you know the bosses take your money and they break your hearts and in feed me it's like hey if you do this for me the girl you like will like you back mm -hmm. yeah absolutely absolutely um, it's it's the logic of like a very particular kind of capitalism, right? It's like right. don't don't you want to be the one that gets to do the violence and exploitation? Don't don't you? It's not like it's not like you know if you work hard and this is a meritocracy. It's like no, we know that it's not. So we already we already know what the boss does, but don't you want to be rich so you can do it too? Yeah, eventually you'll be at the top of this you know, large pyramid shaped scheme. <laughs> <laughs> the, our our three dimensional triangle adjacent business plan. And um, I think that the, the dignity thing is important because like I've, I've in preparation for this, I've been reading a lot about um, people in like for better or worse pyramid scheme culture. And it really seems to be like, <laughs> Oh, these people just want friends. Like even more than they yeah. want money. I, I mean, isn't isn't that the entire logic of like NFTs? Exactly. Yeah. You know, 100%. what do you want? You want to be on the inside. You want to be the one who's in the know. And really, it's a it's an expression of like, it's it's a very in a way, it's a kind of weird attempt to synthesize a false class consciousness. Absolutely. Like this is the thing that MLMs are predicated upon, right? The thing that Audrey too is exploiting throughout this entire film. It's, it's not just material security, it's community. It's, it's this, we, you know, it's, it's the reversal of alienation. It's the bridging of these gaps, you know? And uh, to that point, um, one of the articles I read about like the NFT subculture is specifically mentioned that one of the guys who was really into it was a Tesla car salesman. And I'm th I just thought, well, the thing you're selling is the thing that created your alienated <laughs> existence. Because, like, yeah. you're selling people a device that, like, conveys individualism in its purest form, creating atomized suburbs, creating a world where there's nothing to walk to, destroying the very community of Skid Row. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, it's, it is, it is alienation all the way down, right? It's, it, it's, it turns out it's all alienation and it always was because, uh, this is exactly what happens to Seymour, right? You know, he makes his first choices. Everything seems mm -hmm. to be going great. And he realizes it hasn't fundamentally solved the, 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 uh, the political problem that Audrey II as a metaphor speaks into. And I, I don't think we can let pass, of course, mention of uh seymour without mentioning of course his superb fashion sense oh oh absolutely yeah we, we need to talk about the fact that that does rick moranis just always have killer fashion in film thinking of this i'm thinking of ghostbusters uh, you know rick moranis just on point perpetually uh it's it's this very kind of like it's this very kind of like uh i was gonna say cozy but that's not quite right but like uh, uh, before we started recording, I, I believe the two of you coined the term Moranis Corps. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's ever so slightly nebbish. 
Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it, it, in a way that has like a lot of fun patterns. It, it, it's like he's like 1950s wallpaper as an outfit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I think absolutely. This, the, this winds up being revealing and important for a lot of the characters that Rick Moranis plays because they're often naive in the way that one can become if they have an outdated sense of how the world works. You know, Seymour does, he's, he's, he's naive in the sense that he doesn't really know what Audrey 2 is doing. You know, he, he, he's bought in. He, he can't recognize an obvious, like the most obvious possible con is a plant from outer space asking you to kill people. And he can't, he can't piece that together until it's too late. Well, like how many of us have had a, you know, a Facebook ant try to push that on us? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or or uh, an old friend who suddenly reappears on your feed to go, hey, have you thought about getting into crypto? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting to start with like the, the aesthetics of it, because like, I find like one of the things this movie does so well is that it manages its tone really well. And it's set mm-hmm. in like this sort of nonspecific Looney Tunes slum. But it's very coded to immediately post-war, but it also mm-hmm. feels like a slightly cartoonish version of it. Mm-hmm. But, it's not, but, but, but it matches that by being, like, emotionally real. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I th- this is what I, what I mean when I say that I found it's very hard to resist. Mostly because as soon as you, as soon as you kind of buy in the, it's, it's a deep, it's a very sincere, it's a very deeply emotionally sincere uh, film. It's also deeply weird in a way that's like highly compelling. Uh, mostly again because of Steve Martin's incredible character, who we will who we will get onto in due time. But no, I completely agree. It's this it's this immediately recognizable fantasy of a particular time and a generalized sense of where it's happening. So, what do we make of this then? What do we make of the? kind of time out of time that the little shop of horrors is happening in, right? Filmed filmed in the 80s and with that kind of sensibility, but looking back onto almost like early mid-50s aesthetics and vibe. Vibe check, little well, shop there of was, horrors. There was this really interesting pattern, um, which unfortunately really dominated my uh, personal aesthetics growing up, I realize in retrospect, <laughs> of movies in the 80s having a huge romantic love affair with movies from the 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do all the obvious ones, you know, Roger Rabbit, all the Indiana Jones movies, To Cast a Deadly Spell. Like, we were all, the 80s was just obsessed with redoing the 40s, and it was kind of a side part to Reaganism, which is about like, no, you can go back. You can go back into the, into the mm-hmm. imaginary. You don't have to live in this real world where you have to like wear sweaters and drive less. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's oh it's God. it's simultaneously kind of timeless and also deeply nostalgic, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which which allows for a kind of emotional sincerity, but giving it too clear a sense of specificity in when this happens that would make it seem a bit weird. I think trying to be that kind of like emotionally, it's emotionally, it's a very simple and very straightforward narrative, right? The the beats are not all that complex. The jokes are pretty dark, but really. All of the arcs that the characters go on are fairly are fairly straightforward, um, but it's that it's that placelessness that allows that to function in a way as a kind of fantasy that you project yourself into. Because if it was too specific in when and where this happens, um, I don't think you would buy in in the same way. And something I, I'm gonna circle back to. Oh God, management speak is infecting my brain like a spore. <laughs> um, T- table that. <laughs> something like I do want to get back to is that this is a fantasy of a almost pre-car or at least pre-highway mm-hmm. era because there are almost no cars in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, at the end, when we, we get our happy ending, which wasn't original, there was a whole deleted ending. Yep. When we do get our happy ending, where do we end up? The suburbs. And what's lying in wait in the suburbs ready to gl- claw its way back into you? But a tiny little Audrey 3. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I would love to talk about that deleted ending if if we could all sojourn for a moment into a lost bit of theatricality oh yes, yes. absolutely uh, so excellent so uh spoiler Joel, alert 
John or John <laughs> or Ash, would you like to kind of like lay out what the what the what the ending is and what the kind of lost alternate ending is? So, so we just we just touched on what the what the I, I guess uh, the theatrical release ending was, right? A, a relatively happy ending with a with a uh, the end question mark with the appearance of the Audrey Three. Um, but the, the I guess direct what has become known as the director's cut ending um, features uh, Audrey Two eating Audrey. Um, and then escaping the flower shop and an army of Audrey twos destroying the earth. And a uh, truly incredible, like, this kind of shows, like, the power the producer David Geffen had during uh, the filming of this is that they built, like, this huge puppet array so they could create, like, these gigantic models of giant Audrey twos taking down, you know, Chicago and Cleveland. <laughs> and when the... Test audiences for this movie absolutely loved it until the end. And then they all said, that put me off the entire picture. Yeah. yeah, And and he was powerful enough to say, I don't care if you've shot it. I don't care if we've spent like millions and millions of dollars on this ending. Change it. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason the director gives is that, well, it really started as a play. And on a play, you can kill everyone. And then the audience does comes out and the cast bows and everyone knows it's just a joke. They're not really dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and you couldn't really do that in the filmed version because those characters are now just dead. And it would undercut yeah. what they, what people thought as like the sweetness and of the central relationship. And it's this kind of like weirdly dark, cynical ending that the play, the movie kind of doesn't lead into. But I don't think that's actually the reason. I think that's the reason the director gave, gave himself. I think the mm-hmm. reason people don't, didn't responded so poorly to the original ending with the plants destroying the world is because it's calling them idiots. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. It's like you rubes, you, you you would totally buy into this. This this shit is made for you. And you're going to you personally are going to end the goddamn world. Yeah, because 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 you'll be promised, you'll be promised something, right? You promise Audrey can give you whatever Audrey 2 can give you whatever you want and you will eat that up. <laughs> You know, yeah. it's it's very very direct that ending, and I'm I there's a bit of me that kind of goes, you know what? I wish Frank Oz, uh, shout out to to Yoda and Muppet feature film director Frank Oz for for another <laughs> incredible, just absolute banger of a movie. I wish Frank had just stuck to his guns and just be like, no, kill them all. That's the only way this is going to work. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, that then the now canonical theatrical release ending i always thought like okay i i get why they change it and i get it's a happy ending they go live in the suburbs and get married but um having audrey 2 back in the garden is even creepier because it means you know what there's no getting away from this mm-hmm. it's always going to be there yeah. i don't care how many times you promise you can sell off the working class into prosperity and freedom by just signing a check and giving them all houses it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's even it's more insulting that Audrey Audrey just survives that there's nothing that could have ever been done and that that the director's cut ending will happen. It's it's just a matter of time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's and, just a matter of when. <laughs> and, well, and, and, oh, go on, go on, go on. You I was just going to say, you know, communistically, you can you can delay that signal crisis all you want, but the final crisis yeah. is coming. <laughs> Eventually, capitalism will run out of a frontier. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, there is a limit, right? That, and this is the <clears throat> this is the whole the whole point, right? There is what is Audrey two? Audrey two is the externality, the externality mm-hmm. that is uh, uh, fundamentally insurmountable in a very profound way. Even if you even if you make it, quote unquote, make it off to the suburbs, make it so you're living on the outskirts of that Robert Moses designed hellhole where you now have to drive everywhere. Um, like it's still going to happen. Let's let's talk about let's talk about some city planning. Oh, one second, one second. I will be right back. Okay. Yes. So, how are things? <laughs> <laughs> um, everyone around me is definitely alive, and do not ask about this new mink coat I have. All right. I mean, that's perfect. This is exactly the kind of resp- uh, reply I look for in the Little Shop of Horrors episode. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I just want to make like a side note here: is that like. What is the promise of Audrey 2 and what is the promise of a pyramid mm-hmm. scheme, which is that like they'll ec- 
profit will never end. There'll always be something new to get into. Everyone is going to get rich all at the same yep. time somehow. Mm-hmm. Yep. Complete, and it's just like, that's the logic inf- of... Infinity, right? Because that's what yeah. it promises. It promises you inf- infinity. And that's like the promise of America. Like, there'll always be more West to go to. Mm-hmm. And there'll always be, like, a new people to exploit. And when you'll never run out of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and, and like this is this is this is the whole thing, right? Is like the the inherent principle of of constantly finding new fields of extraction will always end where the director's cut ends, even if it's not literally giant plants destroying the world. I mean, just look, look at. I mean, like Audrey do such a good analog for the coronavirus. You know, th- this is this is something that if it, it could could have been properly managed in a, in a way to to have minimal impact on on society and our personal lives. It could have appeared and then been quashed. But we can never close the coffee shops, the hair salons, the shopping centers. Everything must always stay open forever. And so now we just let hundreds of thousands of people suffer and die needlessly to keep this thing going. I mean, like. I was thinking that while watching the ending of Little Shop of Horrors, and, and I was like, the, the people in the street panicking and, and trying to shoot Audrey too. I'm, it was just missing a cut to, to like uh, uh, the like the press secretary saying like, "Oh, you can Google safe centers that'll keep you away from the Audrey <laughs> Two swarm." The government will See, not this- be sending herbicide. What is that, ludicrous? <laughs> The CDC is advising you to stay at least five feet away from an Audrey too. I mean, uh, this is this is this is really the point, right? Which is that the world in which the inhabitants of Skid Row live um, has been designed in such a way as their own actions in the context of Audrey Two are kind of slightly irrelevant, um, mostly because they have no they have no agency, they have no. Um, they have no mass organization. They have no, um, you know, there's, there's, there's an acknowledgement of, of class antagonisms in that, in that second, first opening song. But like, there mm-hmm. is no, there is no ground on which only I can make it. Only, only I, the individual or I and, uh, and Audrey, only Seymour and Audrey can make it out. Everyone else? Nah, they're not the chosen ones. They can't do it. <laughs> Oh, 100, 100%, right? And like at the end, I, I think one of, one of my favorite scenes is when Seymour's on the roof and he's going to jump and you've got the, the businessman c- comes up to him and says like, hey, we, we, we took the liberty of making a cutting of your Audrey 2. Sign right here and you'll be even richer. And then, you know, he, he can't, it's too late, right? Like so, someone else has figured, a, figured out a way to undercut his business, right? They stole some some of his material. They they right clicked his JPEG, and now it goes on. Yeah, all, all of his apes are now gone. There's, no, <laughs> there's nothing he can do. <laughs> what what is making the cutting of a plant if not right clicking it? <laughs> um. Okay. Let us let us let us continue on. Uh, and I think it's probably worth bringing up. Can we talk about can we talk about Steve Martin? Can we talk about Steve Martin? Yes. <laughs> I, I would I would very much like to know how people feel about um about good oral hygiene and and weirdly about sadism? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a he's a he's in a position of authority and he like uses that authority to um put people in pain. <laughs> Because he gets off on it. Yeah, well, yeah. It, like he literally <laughs> mentions the the Marquis de Sade. Like mm-hmm. this is this is not subtle. Yeah, and I, I what, what I find interesting is that Bill Murray is the thing that undermines the the uh, sadistic dentist. You know, and, and undermines him through through consuming his act of sadism and and just converting it into ecstasy. Right? You know, the the, the sadist dissolves into the masochist in in this sense. And he's he's specifically gone like like hunting for a dentist that can offer him this opportunity. <laughs> and yeah, well, it, it's it's like what did uh, what did they used to say during the Trump years? The cruelty is the point. It's like yep. if you're not suffering because of this, then I I can't get off. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there oh. is there is this there is a a 
a deep, dark, libidinal economy that runs through uh, the, all of Steve Martin's appearances in, uh, on this film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think like the full shape of, of Steve Martin's character is very interesting because we, what we he self-identifies as a sadist, which I think is very important to reading how he justifies his actions and his existence. But but from from our perspective, right? This is this isn't something that that you would recognize as like sadism, the kink. This is this is someone who. Oh, hello. Hey, sorry, I got cut out for a second. Oh, that's okay. Welcome back. Uh, Ash was talking about kink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we have, we have to talk about dental play, unfortunately. Yeah, we, as we do I on mean, every episode. Uh, once again, we've ended up at dental play. <laughs> But but like there's something there's something about his character which doesn't read as like medical fetish right med fet it it reads as he's using that language to kind of repackage his own cruelty right his own instability um, except for everything but the weird trick where he jumps off his motorcycle and magically stops it. <laughs> I mean, like this is this this is that that storyline though is a su- it's it's a super dark joke, right? The the punchline is he's this nitrous addicted uh, abuser um, mm-hmm. uh, that Audrey's only with because, as the chorus tells her, she has uh, what is it uh, a, a low self image that she has to fix. Um, and I'm like, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of amazed that they managed to put in this entire, like, deeply weird plot without kind of like breaking the, the kind of emotional framework of the film as a whole. Yeah, I think it, I think it slots in pretty, pretty organically in a weird way. Cause you can, you need, you need someone who is objectively abject to be the first to sacrifice to Audrey too. Right, you need you need someone who can be like, okay, like I I am nothing like them, and they deserve what's coming. Yes, but I I also think I also think that like on the level of symbology, there is absolutely like if you read if you read the relationships uh, between uh, Seymour and Audrey and uh, Audrey and um, uh, what's his name. Dr. Scavello DDS, I only know that because I played him once. <laughs> uh, Aaron, um, if you read that psychoanalytically, come on, like the, 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 the kind of sexual, uh, as I say, the sexual economy of it is actually very uh, deliberate. They're two opposite poles, aren't they? They're two, they're these, one is like this, this, because, uh, yes, okay, I take your point, Ash, but like, messing around in the mouth with your big pointy instruments it's not really subtextual <laughs> right it's not no. really subtext the text is there and it's this well, it's, I, it's this kind of like stereotype masculinity versus the kind of like sweet slightly nebbish map two opposite poles uh that the film has to kind of try and resolve the tension between well and i think the thing there is that seymour only thinks you know just like the you know our, our sadistic dentist only thinks thinks you know from from his perspective so does seymour seymour only thinks he's different than the dentist but at the end he winds up being worse worse on a magnitude that no human in history could even be worse because he's inadvertently responsible for the apocalypse you know and in like at the very least he's directly responsible for audrey's death mm-hmm. so so he he detests this thing without realizing that he's on the road to becoming something worse there's no, there's no greater criticism outside of moralizing for Seymour. Ooh, I like that. I like that reading. Um, jo- John, what do you think? As someone who's played the dentist. <laughs> and only because his one song does not require any singing talent. <laughs> All you have to do is like do a reasonably good Elvis impersonation. And that, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about the, um, you know, once I identified Seymour as, you know, hustle culture, I was like, okay, well, how does everyone else map out? You have Mr. Mushnick, who's the small business tyrant, mm-hmm. who, yep. you know, wants to wants to steal his employee's invention. Mm-hmm. Um, real Edison vibe there. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, there's Audrey. And I'm like, well, she's obviously the service industry. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. And I think that goes like back down to this theme of like dignity and degradation because she's like, yeah, she gets beat up and she gets uh, hassled at her other job at the gutter mm-hmm. where, yep. she, where she's literally a waitress. And I was just thinking about, you know, um, I'm blanking on the title. It was a book about the service industry. And one line that always stuck with me, it's saying like, yeah, I can't go two days without someone throwing food at me Oof. in a, like a fast food place. And I'm just like, yeah, work is undignified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if it's not the customers treating you like crap, it's your boyfriend or it's your boss. And wouldn't you like to like be treated like a human being for once in your life? And all you have yeah. to do is get rid of some. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Again, so don't, that- don't you want to be the one? Don't you want to be the one? Like, you yes. know, if, are you fed up of your boss having his boot on your throat? Don't you wish you could be the one with the boot? <laughs> Because like there, there's no there's no political way out. It's not recognized as a political problem with political solutions. It's just well, what if I changed? Yeah. What if I just what if I just worked a bit harder? Or what if I found yeah the one weird trick that they don't want you to know about? Brackets murder. <laughs> <laughs> murder for the space plant. <laughs> <laughs> they always leave that one out. Feeding the space plant. I, I think that's extremely interesting, though, is that, like, Audrey 2 is not really a force doing anything alien. It's just literalizing and accelerating our already existing system. You know, like, the, the whole the whole thing is premised on a meat grinder to begin with. Audrey just makes it a literal meat grinder. Audrey 2, accelerationist. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Like quite quite literally expanding. Yeah, I mean, you know, what isn't isn't that isn't that the point, right? Which is like, it's the externality that comes in, it's the outside that comes into the system, and by by not actually changing the system in any radical sense, um, but simply uh, applying an intensification and literalization of pre-existing processes, uh, you can you literally you literally end by destroying the world. Well, I'm I'm glad you made that point because that allows me to ask this question. What is something else, a part of American political life that seemed like a really good idea at the time that everyone would be behind and it would only work out great for everyone forever and then contain the seeds of its own destruction? The New Deal. (laughs) (laughs) Go off. (laughs) Because by not going far enough and not changing the relationships of power between employer and employee by simply making life easier for a select class of people, a.k.a. the white working class, by giving a whole bunch of contractors free money to build as many suburbs as they wanted because you couldn't provide public housing, it had to have a profit motive in it, and have a whole bunch of companies conspire to get rid of streetcars and buses all over major urban areas, and to use car ownership as a de facto way to segregate neighborhoods, then what have you done by applying that new deal? You've created an entire generation living in segregated suburbs who all think like landlords. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) And that's the happy ending of this movie. (laughs) The happy ending is that Audrey and Seymour become massive Reaganites. (laughs) Right? They have kids who go into like who do this uh, the savings and loan scandal. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> oh my god! This it's just the grift in 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 this in this movie, right? The the way that it's so like I, I'm I'm just struck by how an, a singing plant from outer space makes everything so much more literal. Well, what is more American than a singing plant from outer space that promises to fix all your troubles? Oh, literally nothing. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> exactly. something and something that you get through a combination of weird cosmic accident and buying it cheaply from a from a Chinese distributor. <laughs> That's where Audrey comes from. <laughs> and like, I mean, this this just occurs to me now, but Audrey too would absolutely crush it in a presidential election. Like no one, no. It would be it would be like a, an eighty point landslide. Yeah, Audrey too. Like uh, slow jam in the news on Kimmel. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I mentioned before, it's like 
that was Reagan's pitch to America. Like, no, 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 no. You don't have to change anything. Mm-hmm. You yeah. can get everything you ever wanted back. All you have to do is listen to me and do whatever I say. Yeah. 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 Wasn't he called the great communicator? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though, it, like, his his whole shtick was like, ah, oh, he's just a regular guy. You I'm know? just a plant. That's right. I'm just a plant. <laughs> yeah, like, what's the big problem? You know, haven't you gotten what you what you always wanted? I mean, the uh, the it, it's done in this kind of like rapid fire, quick montage as well, which is where Seymour is like getting contracts and getting like getting all of these opportunities that they uh, said at the beginning that they really wanted, um, but just serves to underscore that like the 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 big number that they make any protagonist in a musical do, you know, I'm gonna get out of this small town is really. Uh, expressing the form's inability to reckon with the actual problem. You know, the problem is, the problem is, is your economic alienation, your lack of, your lack of power, your lack of agency or control over your own life, which is substituted for being like, well, I just need to, like, if I'm rich and I can leave, then, then there won't be a problem anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like the running joke about, queer eye it's like no they need another guy to explain to him like you you need to just you need to get rid of your boss (laughs) (laughs) it's like food fashion marxism Uh, absolutely uh, but also it's funny you mentioned the uh the montage sequence because that's the only other major cut in the film Mm -hmm. there's an entire number called the meek shall inherit which again Mm -hmm. makes it a lot more literal like the Audrey's two's vines like start enveloping him. The portrait of Mushnik starts bleeding blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a neat, it's a neat thing to think. And one of the songs I actually really liked, but I, I understand why they cut it because it just drains the energy of that montage to a crashing halt. Yeah, yeah. And this movie works because it's like there's no fat on it. It's just song, 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 song. Yeah, song. yeah. No, Ninety minutes and it just kind of bangs through everything. I think it cut what four or five songs from the from the stage show. Yeah, but a lot of those are reprisals. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think, I think, um, yeah, the montage. You, you, you're right. It's like this is you understand the problem, but the problem has given you a frame of reference by which you can't get to a solution. Right? You understand what the problem is, or you have a language for expressing what the problem is. But the the, the system which has so conditioned you to, uh, to to produce those problems in the first place can't give you a language by which you can have a have a um, uh, an understanding of the solution. You know, it's like um, Vivian Gornick's book on the romance of American communism, where it's talking about like it's this oral history of of people in the twenties and thirties who were in in the Communist Party, and he said like reading Marx was like fireworks going off inside your own head because suddenly you go, oh, that's what this is. <laughs> that now I understand. Now it gives you this is the great this is the great advantage, right? This is the great advantage of. Um, uh, Marxist criticism because it, it gives you it gives you a vocabulary outside of the ideological structures which we're all uh, inculcated within. Mm-hmm. So I have I have I have a question a question for the group right so something that I, I don't know how anyone else uh, is going to going to perceive these events but um some something I, I found to be interesting right in, in um. You know, this this calls back to like invasion of the body snatchers and 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 like the thing and like a lot of other horror movies are, are kind of predicated on a fear of collectivity. You know, a, a, a zombie alone is a novelty. Zombies in mass are the end of the world as we know it. Audrey two alone um, is a gimmick that gets more people in the door of your flower shop and gets you a spot on daytime TV. Mm-hmm. Audrey two in mass is the end of the world. So how do we kind of navigate? the the fear of let's say i don't know collectivization <laughs> that appears in this film hmm. uh, well, john or john <laughs> well i was i i was i was i was gonna get a uh all i was gonna all i was gonna say is that very simply it's the question of like at what point do you think there's a credible like it's really striking to me that this is film is like about something from space because uh, i suspect that in in days of like greater communist red scaring, it would have been a plant that arrives from you know from the mysterious east, or it arrives from Tibet, or it, well, arrives it does arrive from, from the mysterious east. Yeah, but it, but but like that's that's never the kind of like that's they they talk about the solar eclipse all the time, but they don't talk about the fact that he 
he got it for a dollar seventy five from the guy who ran the the Chinese florist. But it's like I I suspect it's because at this point, where's the threat? You know, collectivity politically is not really a threat at this point. So the threat has to be this uh this completely external factor, right? Well, it's also um I mean in a lot of like mid century sci fi uh aliens are stand-ins for communists. So that's like oh, drawing yeah. on a different um, tradition, but it's also like the movie has to explain why both Seymour and Audrey put up with this bad treatment. And they do so by saying, well, he literally lives under the store. Yeah. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, the business owner has been taking care of him his entire life. So he feels owed to it. Interestingly enough, the business owner does not feel anything. He owes anything to Seymour. Mm hmm. And Audrey has poor self-image and she has to work two jobs and she doesn't think anything will ever get better. So it's just like, these are the conditions created so they can't strike. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Collectivity is impossible. So why would it be perceived as a threat until right at the end, right? You know, Mm -hmm. there is no, there is no political agency. If you're, if you're on Skid Row, it's, it's uh, a very pure kind of like, I've got to make it. And if I have to make it by killing other people here, then fine. What about you, Ash? What do you think? Absolutely. I think think this is all really interesting, right? Because there is an aspect of Orientalism to, to Audrey too, right? It does, in quotes, come from the East. And this... But you're, I think I think you're also right in the sense that you know there's all these references to eclipses and solar phenomena and the planet coming from space, and I and I think that there's this kind of confluence of things that happen in that, and it's it's simultaneously this. So so we've got this kind of red scare fear that's diffusing through China, right? You know you see, you see the same things and same thing pop up in Gremlins, right? That this is a very 80s attitude, but it's all we're also on the heels of this is like the fading cultural memory of the space race. You know, like we, we got to the moon first and then we never did anything after that. Then it just became a place where rich people send stuff occasionally and more increasingly in our time. But that means that there's this kind of tacit acknowledgement that we, even though we won the space race, we failed. You know, the, the dream died, you know, on the last trip to the moon. It never made it back. And so space kind of becomes this this nebulous signifier for like, a permanently looming collectivized threat. There's there's something out there and it works together in a way that we can't. Mm. I am mm. willing I am willing to bet I'm willing to bet substantial money that if they ever do the remake they've been talking about for a while, um if they if that ever comes to light in the contemporary kind of cultural milieu, they will make a much bigger deal about the the fact that it could come from a ch- from a Chinese business, right? Because that ties into oh, the, the kind of mm-hmm. gross xenophobia mm-hmm. that's really made a resurgence in American cultural d- discourse over the last few years. So, would anyone like to talk about the American highway system? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, Ash. Yes. Yes, I would. Should we? Uh, we've circled around it a little bit, but let's talk about cars. Oh, I love that movie. Yay! Oh, man, I was about to make that joke. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and really, why? If you end up in the suburbs, you have to have a car. Uh, there is no. There is no subway station. There is no. Uh, there is no public transport, and the. The ways in which cars no longer have a... They don't just have a practical function. They have a political and ideological function as well, right? Yeah. I mean, car ownership was used as a very, like, not... See, there's this thing. There's this thing in the movie Los Angeles Plays Itself where they get kind of mad at movies like Chinatown and Who Framed Roger Rabbit because they kind of imply that, you know, the awful things done to Los Angeles... Like taking, getting rid of its metro system, getting rid of its red car, were like secret cabals. They were not. They were enthusiastically pushed by a, a white populace that wanted to make sure there were areas of town where they would never see a black person. Mm-hmm. 
And the whole thing was like, well, if you have a car, that means you're prosperous. And if you're prosperous, then you live in a prosperous area. And um, so, yeah, car ownership was used as de facto uh, segregation, like on, on top of like, you know, Levitt towns had racial contracts on them mm. and that there were mm-hmm. riots yep. when those were broken. So, yeah, the car does does that. It was also like I mentioned before, like creating the highway system was just a huge giveaway to businesses that depend on highway systems. Like, you know, McDonald's is a real estate company that owns yeah. land near that owns land near highways or just like the very idea of like food you can eat in the car or having to drive to a mall to have a uh, like a simulated downtown experience that you could also mm-hmm. like was very tightly controlled. Absolutely. Yes. And um, there's th- there's an essay I really like called um, the social ideology of the motor car, and it like it basically explains how much like in Repo Man they say driving makes you stupid. Philosophy of this is like driving makes you a perfect bourgeois individualist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I just want to mention just do the first couple sentences, and then I'll let someone mm-hmm. else talk. I swear. Oh, keep going. Uh, the worst thing about cars is they are like castles or villas by the sea, luxury goods invented for the exclusive pleasure of a very rich minority, and which, in conception and nature, were never intended for the people. Unlike the vacuum cleaner, the radio, or the bicycle, which retain their use value when everyone has one, the car, like a villa by the sea, is only desirable and useful insofar as the masses don't have one. That is how, in conception and original purpose, the car is a luxury good, and the essence of luxury is that it cannot be democratized. If everyone can have this luxury, no one gets any advantages from it on the contrary everyone diddles cheats and frustrates everyone else and is diddled cheated and frustrated in return Mm -hmm. absolutely which is why it's so striking that the reward is getting out to the suburbs which by design which by necessity is not universal i mean this is this is what fisher means when he uh, in the uh, infinite introduction to, to acid communism talking about the ways in which uh, the kind of fantasy of the good life is predicated not upon genuine cornucopia, not upon genuine uh, uh, red plenty. Like capitalism depends upon this artificially imposed scarcity as a way of maintaining the value of commodities. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> like... One of the things in, in this film that I was watching, I was like, "My God, that's beautiful!" Is 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 that that whole opening song number? Yeah, where, where you've got like j- j- just this 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 cloud of people in the street, free, and they're like, when I say in the street, I don't mean like nice on the sidewalk. I mean like just in the in the road where the murder sure. machines made out of tons of steel just plow through every day, like, and 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 they're all just like collectively acknowledging their plight. And I'm like, like the, the the real seed in the little shop of horrors is the seed of class consciousness in the opening song and dance number. Okay, so so pun. so 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 here's here's the question then: what's the what's the um, what's the kind of like leftist ending that that doesn't happen? But like from a from a leftist point of view, how how do you solve the the problem of the externality? How do you how do you deal with Audrey too? Skid Row commune. <laughs> okay okay so step one audrey two comes on our podcast uh step two because that is know. a voice that is made for a podcast <laughs> no well, but yeah I, I think that's i think that's exactly the point right i, I think like you, you know like you're, you're both acknowledging the 100 percent correct and brilliant thing to say and that's like like that that beginning moment advancing forward Right. Just like with coronavirus, the thing that let coronavirus run rampant wasn't a special quality of of the virus itself. It was the fact that as a society, we don't have systems in place to deal with it. And we further acknowledged to pretend like or we further decided to pretend like it didn't exist. You know, we, as as, you know, like unions and working people, we didn't have the political agency to do anything about it. And the people with political agency didn't want to. And the same thing is the case for Audrey, too. It makes a bunch of people money in the short term, so there's no need to ever think about what happens with it months down the road. 
Well, I mean, the way that I would I would put it is maybe to sort of return to the problem of the of the vegetal. Um, mm. What the leftist answer is eco socialism, right? <laughs> like, what? Because what 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 do you do with the natural world, right? Do you treat it as a commodity, or do you treat it as something within which we are enmeshed? You know, in what I think it's Jason Moore calls it the web of life, right? Mm-hmm. How how do you find ways of existing with nature, with a natural force or natural externality that is often hostile, but but that a relationship that doesn't lapse into like the dominative extractivist modes that we live in at the moment? Eco socialism, starting with Skid Row. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we could we could do it with what they're doing increasingly in mid level cities is uh, they're getting rid of their urban highways. Like Syracuse just decided like, yeah, we're getting rid of that. And uh, all those places, Robert Moses, particularly uh, ethnic working class neighborhoods because he was an insane racist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like he deliberately put highways through neighborhoods he knew were hotbeds of worker organizing. Yep. Yep. Uh, if if anyone hasn't read it, uh, I I really uh, cannot recommend Robert Caro's book, on Robert Moses. It's called a power broker. It is genuinely jaw dropping. Uh, and I, as someone who is not American, just underscores the deep and profound weirdness of, of American infrastructure or it's the lack of infrastructure. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy that someone said the I word. Um, like infrastructure and in Audrey too, is I think really, really important especially with the director the director's cut ending is, is has consumed so so much of my like mental space after watching this but but one of the things in the in the ending is like like this destruction of infrastructure right audrey 2 destroys bridges and buildings and streets and like but but watching that today i'm like eh, you know honestly that's not that horrific because we we've destroyed all of our own bridges and streets and buildings through not repairing them because repairing stuff doesn't make money yeah, it's there's a reaction of very much like, "Hey, that's our job." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah like when, when when Audrey, the, the, yeah, that one of the deleted scenes is a giant Audrey two on a bridge, um, and, and the bridge can sustain the weight of the giant Audrey two, and, and and I'm like, like what last week a bridge in Philadelphia collapsed just because. It didn't even have an undue load on it. And I'm like, there's no way a, a bridge is going to hold a giant plant monster. Like, we, we need to build back better so that when Audrey 2 arrives, it can freely leave Manhattan and make its way to the rest of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any, any, any final thoughts as we wrap up? Uh, we've we've covered the the endemic structural failures of the New Deal, uh, the struggles of small business owners. Um, this is this has been a great episode, I think. But any 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 final thoughts? Any last minute takeaways? Uh, well, I'm impressed we managed to prove Little Shop of Horrors is about cars and how they are our mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, we return to a I, what I think is a long standing thesis on this show, which is. Um, suburbia is is just deeply cursed. It's the most nightmarish place. It's this artificial, uh, um, haunted mansion made up of violent exclusion and, and you know the suppression of of human sociality. I think we've proven that again. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, and the, the the point about cars, I think, is just a fantastic thing to go out on. You know, the the, the fact that we we've designed a world like that is for cars it's not it's not for people it's not for humans it's not for our enjoyment we're we're stuck on these tiny little sidewalks while cars rule everything and parking lots spread through the country like the infrastructure that supports cars is in much the same sense the exact same thing as audrey too it just it just consumes you bodily and spreads throughout the country until it eventually just burns itself out because there's nowhere else for the personal vehicle to go. I mean, isn't that isn't that raising the possibility then of reading that director's cut ending as utopian? Right? What what do, what what do we what do we need if not like not just not just to rebuild, but actually just to demolish? <laughs> like and well, 
Uh, Audrey 2 acceleration is, well, that's one way of getting rid of American capitalism. Yeah. Isn't <laughs> <laughs> that, does that make the ending, the, the director's cut ending? It doesn't, it's not bleak. It's not bleak. There is a kind of like beautiful hope to it. This idea of like, you know what? We could, we could tear down that, that, that ocean of concrete that has smothered, you know, the world that we inhabit and exist alongside and with and in. Um, and there could be something floral and, and fabulous. I, for one, welcome our plant overlords. <laughs> <laughs> there vote, we go. Vote Audrey too, no matter who. <laughs> there we go. There we go. That's, that's what we go out on. <laughs> well, thank you everyone uh, for joining us in our discussion today on uh, Plants and Cars on our new show, Plants and Car Cast. Um, we'd like to thank John for returning yet again to the uh, vehicular greenhouse that we record. I'm, I'm I'm losing this one. It's not it's not working. <laughs> um, but John, uh, where where can our listeners find you? How can they support you? Um, oh, what well, what are uh, other musicals that you enjoy? <laughs> I don't know. Well, um, I can be found at jlevitt.com. Uh, L-E-A-V-I-T-T and Leave It Alone on Twitter where I'm on incessantly and I actually in Destruction of Capitalism I'd have to say one of my favorite musicals is Mr. Burns a post-electric play <laughs> uh, Magnifique Thank you so much John one of, the, one of the one of the members of a very exclusive group of people who have been on HV three times um, the resident uh, expert in xenobotany. Uh, <laughs> we will we will see you again soon. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, do tune in again next week, and stay spooky, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.